If you're listening to this podcast, it's because you're interested in Iceland. Or maybe you're planning a trip, and you probably have questions. Lots of questions. Circa's new concierge feature, which is now open in Iceland, will change how you travel. You can connect with us directly through the Circa app, and we'll put you in touch with your very own local concierge in the land of fire and ice to ask any questions you have. No matter when you're traveling, let us help make your trip one to remember. For a limited time only, the Circa Concierge is completely free. So download the Circa app from the iOS store and connect with us. You've got questions, we've got answers. Circa, love the world you live in and we'll help you explore it. Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Welcome to Circa. In this Eat Here episode, we'll be listing a lot of places to sample Iceland's incredible flavors. We're going to give you a lot of information, but don't worry. There will be maps, notes, and info on the places mentioned in these guides in the Circa app. Whether you're in Iceland right now, heading there soon, or would just like to learn all about a place we truly love, you're in the right place. This is what we do. So just sit back. Put your headphones on and enjoy. Let me take you out for dinner in Iceland. Circa. Love the world you live in and we'll help you explore it. Let's be honest, it was never the food that brought travelers to Iceland. The first wave of visitors in the 19th century traveled here for two reasons. The first was scientific research, investigating volcanoes and glaciers and the wild outdoors. The second was a sort of pilgrimage to regions, farms and remote places where major events of the Icelandic sagas had taken place. The sagas are 40 or so books of stories, perhaps the first ever published novels which chronicle the history of Iceland from its 9th century settlement until the 11th century. Foreign visitors came in search of the landscapes where the sagas had played out. They brought with them whiskey and biscuits and tea and coffee and canned food from England. But they had to fill the rest of their diet with what was available locally. British author William Morris and the artist W.G. Collingwood and many others throughout the 1800s returned to Britain with beautiful portrayals of the Icelandic landscape, of the weather and the people that inhabited these distant lands. They may have even included something about the local food, but again, that's not why they came. Nor is it why today's travelers set their sights on Iceland. But perhaps now, 
It should be. There has always been a much larger appetite for the waterfalls, the hot springs, the glacier lagoons and volcanoes, than for the local boiled fish and lamb. But today's Icelandic menu has extended to include lobster, reindeer and shellfish as part of a focus on local and fresh ingredients. It's time to serve the story of food in Iceland properly. My name is Svavar Jonantansson and I live and eat in Iceland. In this episode, I invite you to explore the origin of some of the most important ingredients in Icelandic cuisine for the last 1100 years, give or take. It's a cultural and geographical story of survival, and for anyone dreaming of visiting, it's about how these ingredients are served at some of today's best restaurants. The story will unfold like the preparation of any good meal, starting with the ambience. Which brings us to the birth of the Icelandic restaurant. The arrival of dining out. In 1791, Madame Margrét Angel opened the first restaurant in Reykjavík. It stood on the oldest street in town, Adalstræti, next to what is now one of the thriving restaurants in Reykjavík, the fish market. Miss Angel was a widow. She ran a guest house, which then was a requirement for a restaurant license. She had her own cows and grew her own vegetables, like fresh chives, which were quite exotic for the time. But being a pioneer on the restaurant scene had its drawbacks. When she bought an oven to bake bread to sell, a formal note by the local authority was sent to the colonial rulers in Copenhagen asking if such a thing was allowed. This is an example of the repressive attitude of the time. So, despite her success as a restaurateur, she soon chose to rent out her property, but this venture didn't work out well either. Rent was continuously late, and she ran into debt. After selling her property to the state, and settling her own debt, she had little to her name and left Iceland for Denmark. The pioneer that brought Icelanders a restaurant died in poverty in Copenhagen in 1807. But in the most northern capital in the world, the spark of dining outside the home kitchen had been lit. In the 19th century, there were generally two options when it came to dining. By far, the more common option was meals served in a local home, bed and breakfast style, generally by a woman who was called Madame. Students were a common clientele in these establishments. This was known as kostur, averai kosti, simple home-cooked food, no fuss. The second choice were the few restaurants operating within hotels, which also offered some entertainment. The push for more and better dining options came from the well-off citizens of Danish descent. In one way or another, Denmark ruled Iceland for nearly 800 years, and Danish merchants controlled the trade routes on and off the island. They had their little private clubs and gatherings where they must have bemoaned the primitive options Reykjavik offered their privileged class. A national vote to ban alcohol in 1908 led to some oddities of drinking culture. The Icelandic version of beer, dubbed Pilsner, 
with 2.25 alcohol was developed. You can still buy it in the supermarkets, and many tourists mistake it for actual beer. Still today, beer and alcohol is only sold in state-owned liquor stores. The ban on all alcohol, except beer, was lifted in 1935 through another referendum. But popular opinion was that beer would ruin the youth, who instead drank vodka, moonshine, or like any other beer-thirsty adult, a local mix of the light beer pilsner and vodka. In 1989, Iceland lifted its long-held ban on beer, and you now find a large variety of local beers and a thriving microbrewery scene. Head on over to Microbar on Vesturgata to discover some of the best local beers. For one of the best smoky beers in the world, ask for Lava. During the early part of the 20th century, the hydroelectric energy and fishing industries began to develop into important economic drivers. World War II led to a British occupation of the country, as Iceland's location was of strategic importance. The result for Iceland was a local boom. The occupation demanded labor, and the jobs paid well. Infrastructure benefited, and fish and chip shops began popping up in local basements. Locals took full advantage of the fast-growing demand, and there seemed no limit to how high prices could go when it came to supplying the occupation. While the war raged on mainland Europe, Iceland was experiencing boom times. The influx of money into the economy meant that locals suddenly had cash to spend, and there were thousands of bored soldiers looking for entertainment. The number of nightclubs and cafes suddenly made Reykjavik into a city of dance and drink, but good restaurants still lagged behind. The post-World War II dining scene was in a state of extended infancy. Beer was still illegal, and wine was not served on Wednesdays or between 2 to 6 on weekdays, just so that the nation would not develop a drinking habit. Foreign agricultural products were mostly banned, in part out of fear of foreign disease, but mostly to protect the local Icelandic market. This certainly limited the variety of ingredients, because Iceland's notoriously temperamental weather meant fresh local produce was very seasonal. But you could always get fresh fish. The majority of Icelanders ate at home, Boiled haddock with potatoes and a leg of lamb on Sundays. That is, until the nation began to go south. For centuries, young men had gone to Copenhagen to get educated, perhaps a dozen or so every year. Many came back with new political or cultural ideas, and some with an acquired taste for drink. By the 1960s, the fast-growing middle class began to fly to Spain, to escape the cold winters. At the time, Iceland had significant currency restrictions, which limited the amount any person could use for travel abroad. So, many Icelandic travelers brought salted cod in their suitcase, which is called saltfiskur in Iceland and bacalao in Spain. They would sell the bacalao for some extra spending money abroad. People returned to Iceland with new expectations about what food and drink could be. A decade later, Reykjavik had over 300 restaurants, fast food places, and nightclubs. The stable diet of home-cooked cod and haddock began a slow decline. Pizza and chicken became a religion among the younger generation, while the older generation looked on, puzzled. 
In the 50 years since, the nation has gotten wealthier, better traveled, a little fatter, and quite obsessed with dining. But what really put this country on the global map? It was a volcanic eruption. Only in Iceland, right? After the eruption of Eyjafjallajökull in 2010, tourism exploded and has since played a major role in expanding and diversifying the restaurant industry. Now you can find some of the best world cuisine and really spectacular traditional Icelandic food. Let's first lay down a bit of background to set the stage for what you definitely shouldn't miss while you're here. Icelandic food begins. Iceland is located in the North Atlantic Ocean, just below the Arctic Circle, halfway between Europe and North America. Its nearest neighbor is Greenland. That's where our old enemy, sea ice, comes from. This is a country of extremes and opposites, with hot and cold air and ocean currents, notably the warm Gulf Stream, all circling this volcanic island. It creates a very very unstable climate, but extremely rich fishing. In the late 9th century, Norse settlers arrived. You can call them Vikings, but before them, it is believed that Irish monks, called Papar, prayed in man-made caves in Iceland. The monks considered this the edge of the world, a place to get closer to God and further from people. When boatloads of heathen settlers arrived, the monks must have thought that God was testing them. It only takes one paragraph in the ancient sagas, the literature recounting Iceland's settlement, to wipe these religious hermits off the page and out of the story. But the question of how the monks survived is quite curious. How could they have lived off the land without farm animals? There were salmon and trout in lakes and rivers, but perhaps their salvation came from the heavens. We just don't know. The location of Iceland makes it a paradise for migratory seabirds. Puffin, razorbill, gannet, cormorants, and the now extinct great auk were important food sources in areas like the West Fjords and the Westman Islands. Traditional hunting survives to this day, mainly in the Westman Islands, where locals hunt with small nets at the end of a long pole. You can find puffin on the menu in a few restaurants in Reykjavik, but with a 15-year-long decline, the red meat is mostly served as a local delicacy on special occasions in the Vestman Islands. When these settlers, aka Vikings, arrived in the 9th century, they brought pigs, cattle, horses, goats and sheep, who became the first four-legged settlers since the Arctic fox had arrived about 10,000 years before. Sheep would become the cornerstone of Icelandic agriculture. For a rare view of Icelandic goats, visit Hauafell Farm, an hour and 40 minutes north of Reykjavik, or the Reykjavik Zoo for some face time with the descendants of these furry immigrants. So, by the Middle Ages, Iceland was a sparsely populated farming society with periodic fishing, along with bird hunting, which was of great importance. Farm workers spent long winter months rowing out in open boats from temporary makeshift villages by the coast. They 
had to face the unpredictable North Atlantic Ocean in order to bring back the almighty and all-important cod. But neither farming nor fishing was a guarantee for survival. Beached whales and seals, especially during periods when sea ice grounded fishing boats, could be life-saving. Even to this day, the word for a beached whale, kvalreki, is still used to mean good luck. Today, you won't be served the beached whale or seal, but there are still quite a few traditional ingredients on the menu. Let me tell you about a few of these, but don't worry. I'll leave sour sheep testicles, fermented shark and torched seal flippers to last. Better to work up an appetite. A disclaimer before we go further. Iceland can be shockingly expensive. Approach dining like the weather, hope for the best, prepare for the worst, and enjoy some of the best ingredients in the North Atlantic. We begin with a fish that made Iceland go to war. Hi everyone. Circa is recruiting new concierges. A Circa concierge is a friend to ask anywhere in the world. Real people, on the ground, never bots. If you want to be a concierge for your city, go to circatravel.com to sign up. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. A short list of Iceland's most important ingredients. Number one, cod. The fact that the Icelandic flag had a cod with a crown on it until the beginning of the 20th century should tell you something about its importance. The Icelandic diet might have been lacking salt, spices, sugar, vegetables, fruit, and some might say the actual act of cooking for centuries. But protein was plenty, as long as cod could be caught. Farmers annually sent their workers to seaside locations known as ver. These were not holiday resorts, but rather pop-up villages from where men fished during the cold, stormy winter months. It was generally miserable. For centuries, horses slowly meandered from the seaside over lava fields and highland deserts loaded with the dried fish. The best fishing grounds were located off the southwestern Reykjanes Peninsula, the Snæfellsnes Peninsula, and the West Fjords. The largest and most famous was Dretvik, Shit Bay, a short hike from Djúpalón's Sandur Beach, now a famous tourist destination. Don't worry, we'll put all these names in the notes for you. The predatory and fierce-looking cod, which can reach the size of a full-grown man, belongs to the waters around Iceland. Cod became an inseparable part of the nation the moment the settlers discovered an ocean full of it. But, in addition to the risks that came with trying to catch them, there was then the challenge of preserving them. The solution was cheap and simple. Filets were spread on rocks over large areas, and the leftovers, including fish heads, were hung from driftwood pillars, which might be mistaken for a giant makeshift tent camp. Dried cod is still produced in this way, 
A 15-minute drive from downtown Reykjavik on Road 42 will bring you to a big outdoor cod drying operation, still using this ancient method to dry the fish. The charm is certainly not in the smell of thousands of dead fish dangling in the breeze, but rather in the simplicity of this age-old tradition. Walking under the gaze of thousands of fish is probably the strangest thing you'll do in Iceland. And yes, it's fine, as long as you don't take the fish. Most of this dried cod is now exported to Nigeria, of all places. Check the notes in the Circa app for a link to the history of dried cod, called skreid, or stockfish in English. Stockfish was traditionally the Icelandic version of bread, which was quite rare, since corn crops mostly disappeared in the 14th century. Stockfish was eaten with butter or drunk with whey. For a taste of the strong-smelling dried cod, pop into any grocery store and pick up a bag. The growing rate is about $70 a kilo. Get some local butter, called smur, and scoop it up with the fish. Experience the taste of history, the oldest combo in Icelandic cuisine. In some areas, it was a custom to hand visitors a string of dried fish heads to pluck out the beet, just so they wouldn't get bored. But the cod wasn't only for the poor Icelandic nation. Cod caught off the coast of Iceland, enriched towns and fed families in Spain, especially in the Basque region, Britain and Britain in France. Salted and dried cod even played a part in the Atlantic slave trade by providing cheap food, which now appears in various local dishes in the Caribbean. And in 1958, Iceland went to war in the name of cod. There were in fact three so-called cod wars with Great Britain over 18 years, but thankfully no human casualties. Iceland fought with wire cutters against English fishing nets and was eventually able to extend its territory to 200 miles offshore. The UK fishing industry collapsed. Today, Icelandic fishing boats catch around 270,000 tons of cod for domestic and foreign markets. Bacalao, salted cod in Spain, fish and chips in the UK, and fish head soup in Nigeria, along with high-end restaurants around the world serving the tender white meat, is largely a courtesy of Iceland. Before having caught in Iceland, I suggest a walk by any harbour or ocean front, just to take in the enormity of its history. Take a window seat at Kåpar restaurant, overlooking the harbour in Reykjavik, for a dish of lightly salted pan-fried cod served with quinoa, salad, tomato salsa, red cabbage and mushroom foam. It's the freshest white fish you'll ever taste. Or head to Matrodrikur for Icelandic food traditions taken to the next level. They often reinvent their menu, but if you're lucky enough to see cod head or salted cod on the menu, you've hit the jackpot. For more recommendations, check the Circa app. I'll include some of my favorites. Number two, lamb. Sheep have always been the cornerstone of Icelandic farming. They take care of themselves during the summer by grazing in mountain valleys and in the highlands. The autumn roundup has been a yearly milestone for ages. It's still a social event where farmers, family and friends mostly go on foot to fetch the sheep. Some areas are easy to cover, while others are more like a grueling multi-day endurance event. In September, 
The weather can be glorious with a chilly crispness to the air and yellow and red hues in the hills. Wild berries are ready for picking and the roundup can be an idyllic long hike. On the other hand, there is always the chance of a storm or early snow, especially up in the north. Sheep are hardy survivors, but they also have a tendency to seek out extremes. They can be seen scrambling above green pastures on near vertical cliff faces for no apparent reason. A very small part of the Icelandic sheep population includes strong-willed leaders called leader sheep, Forstufir, with highly developed navigational skills. A group of sheep will follow its Forstufir as he or she leads them through life-threatening storms back to shelter. This rare quality is thought to be a genetic trait not found anywhere else in the world. Breeding for qualities like meat and wool slowly meant the leader sheep were voted out until pioneers in the northeast began to breed them back into the population. Sheep and lamb became a hardy staple and traditionally were as limited in preparation as the cod. Aside from boiling the meat when fresh, preserving lamb meat in Iceland prepared by a method of smoking and hanging it to try, similar to the Spanish ham or jamón. The lack of trees and firewood in Iceland led to the prevalent use of animal dung, a smelly tradition that is still held in great esteem, though birch is more common nowadays. When it became possible to freeze meat in the early 20th century, smoked lamb, called hangikjöt, hanging meat, became something of a delicacy reserved for Christmas. Today, you can find plenty of places that nurture the tradition of smoked lamb. Like Café Loki, opposite the big church Hatgrimskirke, where you can order a traditional simple dish of smoked lamb on flatbread. Or you could try lamb street food at the food hall out on Grande Harbor in Reykjavik. Their lamb wraps honor the local organic ingredient with a fusion of Middle Eastern traditions. Number three, skir. There's a children's tale that everyone in Iceland knows through books and bedtime stories. It's about a magical cow named Bukotla. Long story short, Bukotla gets kidnapped by a troll, of course, and as the farmer's son makes a daring escape with her, the hairs from her tail magically create fog, fire, and finally a mountain to slow down the troll. The poor farmers regain their most valuable possession, the cow. Cows have played the major role in Icelandic farming and its diet since the 9th century settlement. In the Old Norse religion, there was Öyð Humla, a cow from which four rivers of milk flowed, to nourish the first living being, Ymir, a hermaphrodite giant. How's that as an argument to get your kids to drink milk and grow up strong? Aside from dried fish and various preserved meats, cow's milk and sheep milk were the main source of protein in Iceland for a thousand years. The most important product made from dairy was skir. It's similar to Greek yogurt in texture, but with a slightly sour taste. What makes it unique compared to similar products, like the Middle Eastern quark, are the probiotics. Letting skimmed milk age was a way to foster the bacteria, which, like yeast for bread, played a crucial role in making skir. The high-protein, low-fat, long-storing, dense liquid was the dish of the day. Every day, 
for a thousand years. Along with its runoff product, whey, skir was often served with a piece of sour meat or fish, which made it a protein-rich diet. The ancient Icelandic superfood has become an international success with brands like Siggi's, and you can now find it in supermarkets around the world. Today, in Iceland, you can sample skir at local skir bars, like Ise Skir Bar, and various farms making homemade skir. A two-hour drive north of Reykjavik brings you to a small Icelandic dairy farm, Erpstadir, with a big selection of homemade skir, ice cream, and cheeses. Or, try skir as prepared by a Michelin-starred restaurant, Dill. Working with the freshest ingredients, local traditions, and fearless creativity, the simple ingredient redefines everything from sauces to desserts. The most tender meat, you can imagine, is the result of Dill's chef's use of skir, and are not afraid to lather a potato mash with creamy sour skir. Plan ahead and make your reservation well in advance. We'll put a link to Dill in the notes. Finally, simply stroll into any supermarket and get yourself a can of skir. It took a thousand years for our next ingredient to even get to the lips of the Icelandic people. Number four, mussels. Twice a day, the moon reveals a delicious life form on some of Iceland's beaches. As the tide falls, the armored bodies of dark mussels appear. Kræklingur, or the more recent name Blauskjel, or blue shell, the oval-shaped shellfish, used to be a crucial part of the Icelandic diet. But, in a roundabout way, the tasty soft salty meat was traditionally used only as bait. In Kvalfjörður, a beautiful deep fjord just north of Reykjavik, fishermen would stand knee-deep in the cold water, using rakes or their hands, to harvest the mussels that grew below the tide line. Its role as bait seemed to create a mental barrier to eating it, and only times of hardship broke that barrier. It wasn't until the first mussel farms began to operate in the late 20th century that a newfound appreciation for this delectable crustacean began to be nurtured by restaurants. Today, you can enjoy mussels at the Seafood Grill in downtown Reykjavik, but be aware that they usually only have them in summer. To taste shellfish in the region synonymous with it calls for a journey to the beautiful old town of Stekisulmur on the northern Snæfellsnes Peninsula. The various attractions, including its early 19th century charming buildings and the stunning cliff by the harbor, a great place for bird watching, deserves at least an overnight stay. I recommend the boutique hotel Eilsen, the Breidafjörður region, which is the ocean north of the Snæfellsnes Peninsula, with its hundreds of islands, is traditionally known as the food basket of Iceland. In Stikkisulmur, you can take a boat tour that includes tasting shellfish straight from the sea, as well as sail past tiny islands, which one of the cutest bird species on Earth calls home, the Atlantic Puffin. Then head for dinner at Narverastova, the oldest restaurant in town, for 16 locally sourced scallops served with barley, dulse, sweet potato and mayo dots on a plate made of a Christmas tree for around $30. Yes, I'm serious, a Christmas tree. Just be sure to book ahead. The small and charming restaurant Sjávarpakkhúsið is another great option, right on the harbour 
with a mouth-watering menu including halibut and desserts to die for. Their shellfish speciality is mussels with garlic, butter and white wine, a standard preparation done exquisitely. Just be aware, as the mussel farmer who supplies the restaurant likes to holiday in winter, summer is the season for this dish. Number 5. Reindeer The King of Denmark made it clear in 1751, when he ordered reindeer to be imported from northern Norway, that he felt the Icelandic diet of fish and sheep to be unacceptable. Both could fail in years of sea ice, disease and hay shortage, but the hardy Sami reindeer, on the other hand, could survive almost anything. The few dozens imported to areas in the south, west and north had varying success. Until... They did not. The 1783 volcanic eruption of Lakagigar, just north of the south coast village of Kirkjubajaklöstur, was thought to have triggered the French Revolution after its far-reaching environmental impact blocked out sunlight and led to crop failure in mainland Europe. In Iceland, the fine volcanic ash and gases led to around 20% of the human population dying. The newly imported reindeer roam in the country all died out, except those in the northeast, where they would eventually prosper. There are now around 7,000 animals roaming the mountains from the northeast to the southeast part of the country. Reindeer hunting is the only big game hunt in Iceland, and the 1,200 or so yearly permits are drawn by a lottery system. A local guide must be hired for every hunt, and all the meat has to be carried on foot, a grueling task in the rugged mountain terrain, Part of the catch from this sustainable hunt does make its way to restaurants around the country, but with limited supply, it's more common to see it on menus as a starter. Depending on the season, Hamburgarafabrikan in Reykjavik serves a reindeer burger with apricots and blue cheese on a potato bun. It's delicious. We'll drop a link in the notes. For more reindeer in Reykjavik, check out the Ruok and Eriksen Brasserie. If you're lucky enough to find yourself in the reindeer territory, of the east during summer, head straight to Nilsen in Eilstadir, where head chef Kauri prepares reindeer steaks and pies, using only what he hunts himself. In case he runs out of either, try the marinated tomatoes with locally made skir. It's a sour and savory feast from one of Iceland's most progressive chefs. Preservation of Traditional Cuisine When Guðbrandur Thorlaugsson, the 16th century bishop of Iceland, set out to correct some of the many lies foreign writers had published about the nation throughout the centuries, he was faced with a near-impossible task. The German writer Blefken had portrayed Icelanders as devil worshippers living in holes, cherishing their dogs more than their children, and describing the volcano Hekla as the entrance to hell. Convincing people in the 21st century that sour sheep testicles or delicacy definitely shares the same challenge. But at least we should try to understand why. Why would anyone put such a thing 
on any nation's menu. Here we go then. Iceland certainly has a reputation as having some of the strangest food traditions in all of Europe. And while many of them aren't part of an everyday diet, a few of them have absolutely hung on. Liver sausage, a relative of Scottish haggis, and frozen sheep heads both have a significant presence in today's supermarkets. Seeing dozens of sheep faces staring at you from the freezer section of the grocery store can be a little unnerving to foreigners. But in Iceland, it's the norm. Plenty of our unique traditions come out of the science of preservation, a challenge that was solved in many ways over the centuries as Icelanders found ingenious solutions to keep food available over the long winter months. The fish was dried and the lamb smoked. But there was another way. The way way. A few things happen when you store meat in the acidic liquid known as mesa or whey, the byproduct that comes from making skir, Icelandic yogurt. The lifetime of the food is extended to months or years while preserving the minerals and vitamins. The probiotics that develop with the souring of the whey actually creates good germs for gut health. The acidity also forces out the salt in the food, making it, well, less salty and more sour. It slowly softens the bones in the meat, which can then be eaten. Perhaps this is a good time to remind you that Iceland was a very challenging place to live, and we had limited food options. The method is simply called sursun, souring, and it's fairly unique to Iceland. After the autumn slaughter season, the barrels away would store lamb products like liver sausage, ram testicles, sheep heads, and blomur, which translates to blood fat. So yes, sour blood fat in a sausage, served cold with a dash of skir in one's wooden bowl to brighten up the long and dark winter nights. Plenty of things could be preserved in this way. Seals flippers, bird's eggs, whale, puffin, duck, and fish eggs. It was how we survived for centuries, and the acquired taste, like anywhere, became part of our cultural heritage. The sour liquid, known as sira, or acid, even appears in one of the most epic moments in the Viking sagas. In the story of a 13th century wedding feast, portrayed in the book Sturlunga Saga, Arson kills 25 of the guests, while the man targeted, Kissur Thorvaldsson, manages to hide in a barrel of the sour liquid, later to take revenge. A sweet and sour tale of sorts. In Iceland, a movement of migration brought people to the capital region before and after World War II. The old food traditions were much stronger in rural communities, and so many of the older generation grew up eating sour sheep testicles and other sour foods. The mention of it will make most 90-year-old Icelanders light up like a Christmas tree. On the other hand, kids and teenagers are likely to react with less enthusiasm, but if a child actually likes the old food on offer once a year, or Thorin at the end of January, the parents will usually brag of it as if it was a superpower and the news will report it. Thorin is the hardest period of winter when the autumn supplies are dwindling just before the cod fishing season begins. The ancient tradition of feasting during this time is called Thorra Blod and accompanies a ceremony worshipping the old Norse gods. 
When Iceland was converted to Christianity in the year 1000, this tradition was banned, with the clause that it was allowed if done in secret. The modern feast, on the other hand, is no secret. Restaurants, retirement homes, hotels, local municipalities and sport clubs advertise and serve the sour feast to a population eager to maintain the tradition. Even kindergarten children get a bite-sized introduction at school. And finally, we've reached one of Iceland's most iconic infamous food traditions, the Greenland shark. The shark is a particularly tricky ingredient. You have to believe only a population in desperate need would have found a way to eat it. First of all, it's poisonous. It contains a natural antifreeze to survive in the Arctic waters between Iceland and Greenland. In order to neutralize that poison, Icelanders developed a method of curing through fermentation called kaisink, which involved piling rocks on the meat, letting it rest for 4 to 12 weeks, and then hanging it for months. The myth of peeing on it is just that, a myth. Trust me, there's plenty of ammonia in the shark itself. The fermented shark meat could then last for years. The shock of the smell and taste has often been compared to strong French cheeses, though the smell of ammonia can feel like an actual punch as you take a deep breath. Historically, shark was mainly caught off the west fjords and cured in wooden shacks, but is now mostly a bycatch in small numbers. And it's expensive. Unless you visit the flea market or the shark museum in Bjarnarhub, you're unlikely to see shark on the menu. Served mostly at local Thorrablot gatherings, it survives mostly as a link to the past. As awareness about climate change and conservation grows worldwide, Iceland is often seen as a leader in energy, climate and environmental initiatives. This has led to a change in thinking about some of the traditional foods. Puffin in the Westman Islands was eaten throughout the year in earlier times, but now it's a treat during the summer festival of Vestlumanahelgin in the first weekend of August or at small family gatherings. The puffin population has been in a sharp decline since 2003 and the Greenland shark, which can live well over 100 years and is one of the longest living animals on earth, is listed as endangered. But it should be mentioned that the few caught off the coast of Iceland mostly come as bycatch. For many, the hunting of whales in Iceland is an outrage and the serving of it by a few local restaurants is not without controversy. You might see it on a menu, but it is not really a part of the local diet, except for the once-a-year Thorrablod. So like anywhere, keep your eyes open and make your own decisions, but don't worry, it takes a fair bit of work to find trouble dining out in Iceland. And rest assured that Iceland has something for everyone's taste. And let's not forget the local fast food, the hot dog called pilsa, or pulsa, a grammatical preference, just like whether you like your hot dog with ketchup, mustard, fried, or fresh onion, remoulade, or all of the above. Hot dog stands can be found all over the city, but this national dish on the go can also be picked up at most gas stations. And then there is the complicated relationship with Denmark, Iceland's former colonial ruler for centuries, but the Danish tradition of smørbrød, perhaps the Nordic equivalent of sushi, is served without any complication 
at the chill downtown restaurant Jomfruin, the Virgin. Ethnic restaurants like the Nepalese Himalayan Spice, down by the harbor, and masters of the new Nordic cuisine, like Dill and Ox, all combine to make the city more diverse and interesting than it has ever been before. We have plenty of places to recommend, from the traditional flavors of Iceland to hamburgers and even vegan options. Find all of these in the Surga app. Dining in Iceland is like the culture here, informal. There are no age-old etiquettes or do's and don'ts in Icelandic restaurants, and the dress code is casual. Exploring the Icelandic food scene is like its music scene. You can find most genres on this tiny island, but you will often find them done with a twist. So, cheers, or as we say skál, to 1100 years of dining in Iceland. Thank you for listening to our Iceland Eat Here episode. Now that we've filled your mind and your stomachs with what to sample here, remember to check out the other Icelandic episodes in this guide for deeper dives into Iceland's war history, its renewable energy ethos, and what to do with your kids. Whether you're heading to Iceland right now, sometime in the near future, or would just like to learn all about a place we truly love, you'll get instant access to the full guide plus new episodes on a regular basis when you subscribe to Circa. Find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or download the Circa app, where you can also get pictures and maps and notes on this episode and more. Maybe you'll want to sample our guides for Barcelona, Los Angeles, Hawaii, London, and many, many more. Circa. Love the world you live in, and we'll help you explore it.